morning, Grace Meridian Hill. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 2, verses 1 through 24, 32 through 33, and 36 through 41. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what appeared to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God, to you by, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has, raised, God, has raised Jesus, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, 
and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. Mike, would it help if I held it? Does it matter? Okay. So I don't know if you all know, the reason why we're here doing it like this, and this building got hit by lightning the other night. Uh, so if you've been wondering why there's so much power today, uh, now you, you know, now you know. Um, no, that's right. We got some extra electricity uh, today. No, thanks for bearing with us as we remain flexible. Uh, we have what we most need, which is the people of God and the Spirit of God. Amen? All right. Let's say a word of prayer together. Jesus, thank you for being present. What I just said is true. What we most need is you, the Spirit of the living God. Thank you for giving him to us, the Holy Spirit, in no small measure, generously pouring him out upon us because we're weak without him, powerless without him. Holy Spirit, please be powerfully at work within us today. We also have the people of God here. Thank you for gathering us together, every person here, a, a unique vessel of your grace. You're, you're doing something in each of our lives, uh, sometimes that we're not even aware of, sometimes in ways that we're trying to resist even. Pray that you would open our hearts to you, that you would give us grace that we need Sometimes grace that we're not looking for, but that we desperately need. Give us life through your word. Bring conviction that only you can, Holy Spirit. Truth and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if any of you are fans of Kanye West. Maybe former fans. I don't know. Recently getting into trouble. I was reading about his latest creative venture. I don't know if you've heard about it. Uh, every Sunday since January from the new year, Kanye and his family, his friends, of course his VIP associates, they've been gathering together at this invite-only gathering, a crowd of people in Calabasas, California. Kanye's been calling it Sunday service. Sometimes they gather in an open field, beautiful setting, out in the hills and the trees, and other times, they're indoors. There's a choir, always. Great music. I've heard some of it online. It's amazing. Guest performers, the lineup which has included Chance the Rapper. DMX has been there, too. <laughs> you chuckle. Because, as observers have mentioned, it's meant to be part performance, part spiritual experience, and of course, 100% Kanye, right, as always. But to give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment, there does seem to be a sincere interest in attaining something transcendent at these Sunday services. In fact, his wife, Kim Kardashian, recently described the weekly event in, in this way, this is what she said about it, it's really a healing experience. There's no sermon, there's no word, it's just music and it's just a feeling. Of course, this sort of spirituality is all the rage these days, of course. Maybe it's something that you personally are very familiar with. More and more Americans these days describe themselves 
as unreligious or non-religious, but they also describe themselves as spiritual. In fact, among those between the ages of 23 and 38, so-called millennials, fully one-third say they, you, they have no religious affiliation. That number is steadily growing. But among that same group, fully 80% say they believe in some sort of a God. And they identify with statements like, I feel a deep sense of spiritual peace and well-being. Or statements like, I experience a deep sense of wonder about the universe. Spirituality is really hot. Our passage today from Acts, chapter 2 here, as we started this new study, this new series in the book of Acts last week, this chapter teaches us a bit about spirituality. Well, it reminds us, first of all, that spirituality, according to the Bible at least, starts with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Christian Trinity. It's spirituality. Acts 2 describes here one of the biggest events in biblical history. See, just seven weeks after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, just ten days after he ascended back into heaven, as we read about last week, God the Holy Spirit comes down in a totally new way. Of course, the Holy Spirit wasn't brand new to God's people, to what God has been doing in the world, because throughout the Old Testament, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon, that language, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon, especially leaders like Moses and Joshua and Samson and and David. And of course, the Spirit also spoke through the prophets. And the Spirit promised to dwell and live among the people. But on this incredible day in Acts 2, just like the prophet Joel had foretold, as Peter quoted in verse 17 there, the Spirit was being poured out, poured out upon God's people in a brand new way. Not just upon them, not just among them, And not just working through them, but now in them. Can you believe it that through Jesus, God himself can live in you? And not just for a few elite individuals. (coughs) All of them. All of you. Anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. It's the greatest of all promises. Not simply that God would forgive you of your sins, as amazing as that is. And not simply of having the gift of being known by God. And not just abstractly belonging to God, but to be inhabited by God. To have Him dwell within you, to be that intimately united with the God of the universe. This day was a foretaste of the climax of the promise of Christian salvation. This Holy Spirit has finally come. All this took place on the day of Pentecost. We see that language in verse 1, Pentecost. Like Pentagon, that's 
a word that comes from the number five. Here it refers to the number 50. Pentecost was a a spring harvest festival that was celebrated 50, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover in ancient Israel. It commemorated the time when God's people, after escaping slavery from Egypt after the Exodus, they camped out at Mount Sinai before this great mountain. And there, as you may know the story, Moses climbed up the mountain to meet with God. God himself descended upon the mountain. And in the midst of thunder and lightning and a blaze of fire, because what do you expect when God shows up, right? God was present, and he gave the law to Moses. And he established a promised relationship, a covenant, with his people. Well, check this out. Jesus is, in the New Testament, presented as the new Moses. And here now, since he's ascended the mountain, not Mount Sinai, but now Mount Zion, all the way up into heaven. Here he goes up, and now the Spirit of God descended upon the mountain and down to his People here, the 120 disciples that were gathered together for prayer. God's personal presence came upon the people. Now, not with thunder and lightning and a blaze of fire, but verse tells us now with the sound of a blowing of a violent wind. Still a shaking and a quaking. Because God has come down, not with a blaze of fire on top of Mount Sinai, but with what seemed to be tongues of fire. We're told in verse 3, on top of each and every one of their heads. You see, it was just like the way it was before, but now even better, bigger. God is present. God is here. A new covenant that the prophets had promised was being established. And so the disciples go outside. They tell the crowds about Jesus. Peter begins to preach. And then a great harvest. A harvest festival, right? A great harvest, not of grain, but of people. We're gathered that day. As the story concludes in verse 41, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. A new era of God's Spirit had begun. According to verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit that day. But what does that mean? That that filled with the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? Or in other words, what is true biblical spirituality? Spirituality. Is it what Kanye was trying to create or maybe what you personally are trying to create in the quiet of your room? Is it what 80% of millennials already embrace or could there be something more? How does the Bible define it? I want to run through briefly six things. We're going to move quick. (laughs) Even I got Jim the gasp over here. You can hear it. Six quick things that we're going to run through. Not everything that the Bible says about this topic, but some things that we find here. Number one, true spirituality descends from heaven. True spirituality descends from heaven. American spirituality 
tells us that spirituality starts from within you. Not something that comes down, not something that comes from the outside, but rather it's something within you because after all, you have this potential. And what you have at the core of your being is something essentially good. You're just not digging deep enough. You're just not finding yourself enough at the truest of your centers is something that can get you through the challenges of life. So dive within. The Bible tells us something different. You need help from without. You need power that you don't already have. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. How was the arrival of the Holy Spirit described in verse 2? Here are the words. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came down from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting came down from heaven. In verse 4, it says this, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. So what? You need spiritual power? You need answers to life's greatest questions? You need salvation itself? Then you need something from heaven. Not from within you, but from without of you. Pastor and author Tim Keller makes the observation here that in modern spirituality, we tend to believe that the biggest problems that we have in life are out there. And we tend to believe that the solutions to those problems are resources that we already have in here. All the power that you need. You see, the problems out there, the solutions in here. But here's what the Bible tells us. Actually, your greatest problem is right in here. A corrupt heart, a sinful heart, our addiction to selfishness, all the things that distort our relationships, the use of our gifts, our opportunities and resources, the way that we see God himself, all of our deepest problems are right in here. And that's not to deny that there are problems out there, but I will say this. If your life's attention is totally and exhaustively focused on the problems of the world out here, as they tend to be, In a town like D.C., people that are vocationally called and employed to solve the problems out there, you can start to accidentally train your heart to believe that the real problem in the world is out there. And the real solution to the world is right here. And just like that, right here, right? That's the pizzazz with which we talk and sometimes the arrogance with which we carry ourselves around as if we were the solution to all things. Folks that are rightly committed to causes of justice, human rights, and the sufferings of the world have to most be on guard against this misunderstanding, right? As terrible as things are out there, and yes, we must labor in that direction. Greatest problems are right in here. The greatest resources that we need are not found in here, but are found up here. God, the Spirit, who needs to descend down here and out here that needs to descend into here. There's a difference between believing that the problem's out there, the solution's in here, versus saying the problem is out in here and the solution is up there. The difference between saying that what I really need is for the world around me to change versus to say what I really most need to do and I'm most responsible for is for me to change. God gives you what what you need, doesn't he? 
This is a story of grace. God descends. Nobody in this story pulled the Holy Spirit down from heaven. He was poured out. You hear that language? Poured out. Number one is a gift. Number two, with the generosity of God's infinite love. Given to you as a gift. Will you just receive it? Number one, true spirituality descends from heaven. Number two, this one's quick, true spirituality is public. American spirituality tends to see what goes on in our interior life as a private matter. Sure, I might do yoga together in a group, but generally what happens in my soul, in my heart, in my inside life is basically just up to me, and I can do it however I want to. It's my choice, it's my life, it's my Soul. And of course, what we also mean by private spirituality is the increasing pressure that there is in our society for people to keep all their religious beliefs more and more private. Keep it to yourself, especially those controversial views that you might hold. But look at what we find in verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then what? They went off to a quiet retreat forever? They sucked inward into a place of solitude forever. And I'm not saying that we don't need both of those things at points in our life, solitude and retreating. But no, listen, what did they do? Filled with the Spirit, they began to speak in tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. They began to speak and engage with people. They started telling their neighbors about what Jesus had done. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd In verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them. There's an engagement, there's a speaking, there's a public nature to the way in which these now spirit-filled disciples carried their fresh faith in Jesus. It was a public faith, not a private one, not a hidden one. And what this doesn't mean is that every Christian, therefore, is called to get out their milk crate, right? Head down to Chinatown or the middle of Civic Plaza in Columbia Heights and start preaching in the open air as Peter apparently did that day. That's not necessarily, necessarily what that means. But perhaps what it means is looking around and seeing people in our public lives and actually with eyes of love being able to recognize that we're surrounded by people that are struggling, and ourselves as well, that are struggling with finding meaning in life, purpose for what they're doing, people that struggle with satisfaction, people that struggle with, with broken relationships and, and a sense of hopelessness. And so the only question here really is, Not even necessarily are you ready to go out there and tell the world about Jesus, though you might get there, but first start here. Are you just willing to have conversations with people in your lives, in your neighborhood, in your workplaces, in this city, about questions of meaning, questions about happiness, questions about hope? Because if you have God's Spirit in you, And if you have a sense of Jesus dwelling within me, changing my life, forgiving my sins, giving me a destiny, life together with him for all of eternity, you've got something to share, don't you? Which, of course, isn't to bang on doors and to proselytize in an offensive and even annoying sort of way, but rather it's just authentically 
sharing about who you are, your life, your story, your meaning, your hope, your happiness, your confidence. And of course, this will be uncomfortable. At times, it just will. But this is what happens when the joy of the grace of God overcomes us. What does it do? It starts to overcome our apathy. It gets us moving. You can almost feel the energy in this passage as the disciples start going out. We find a new humility that the grace of God gives us when you start to really believe that you're saved by grace and not because of anything that you deserve. Then you start to actually treat your neighbors with more respect. Why? Because, hey, I was, it wasn't that long that I was on the other side. Or, hey, these are good big questions that need to be answered and dealt with gently because, hey, I struggled with them too. And I don't get them, I don't get the answers simply because I'm smarter than, better than, but rather simply because God's grace has come upon me. It keeps us humble. It eliminates all superiority complexes that we might be tempted to have. And it ignites in our heart a genuine love. Because this is really what it is, a love for those immediately around us. That's what drives us to what we might see here as being the public faith that marks true spirituality. Number three, true spirituality is not only from heaven, descends from heaven, it's not only a public faith, but true spirituality, thirdly, promotes social healing. Promotes social healing. American spirituality tends to talk about one's engagement with God or one's engagement with oneself as just an internal and personal thing. It might change me, but that's pretty much the limits of what this spirituality is all about. In fact, most of the time we talk about it in terms of coping. I just want um, less anxiety at work, right? This is why uh, a lot of meditational practices and such are becoming popular even in the workplace. What is it? Well, you know what it is. We actually want to help you so that you can be more productive. Right? <laughs> we want to see you be able to do more, right? Or maybe just for yourself to be able to cope with the stresses of life a little bit better. But look at what we find in verses 5 through 12. By far, not just an internal and personal spirituality, but one that starts to change our relationships and change the communities around us. Verse 5, now they were staying in Jerusalem. There were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that we, each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Potosan, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya and near Cyrene, visitors in Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? And what does this mean? Jewish people from all over the Mediterranean region had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is just 50 days later, after all, and they're scattered all throughout that region. This is called the Jewish diaspora. And so most of them, though Jewish in ethnicity, they spoke different languages in their own hometowns. What's being described here is by the power of the Holy Spirit, a miracle was happening in their midst. The people were able to hear 
as the disciples were able to speak in all the languages of all those regions. This was a multilingual miracle, which is meant to be actually an echo and a reversal of the stories that we find in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. In Genesis 10, we're given a list of what's called a table of nations, all the different ethnicities and peoples that existed in that time. And in Genesis 11, we find the story of the Tower of Babel, which, of course, in short, was a story of all the people in that area speaking one language, but united against God, who were then eventually scattered across the nations of the earth in judgment. But here on the day of Pentecost, we see the exact opposite. People from all over the place, formerly scattered, People of every language being united together by God in Christ, gathered together in salvation. What we have here is God's Spirit healing the enduring divisions and hostilities shared by the peoples and the cultures of the world. This is meant to be a foretaste of heaven and the beginnings of what is to be a pattern throughout the life of the church, even to this very day. It reminds us that this kind of unity and harmony and solidarity across our different ethnic and cultural and racial differences is not just a human endeavor, is not something that can be overcome just by human will or ingenuity, but can only be dealt with, can only be healed by the power of the Spirit of God. Pentecost symbolized a a new unity in the Spirit that transcends national, linguistic, and racial barriers. And you see what we find in this passage is one of the major distinctives of Christianity. I mean, you almost take it for granted, but it's true right here that there's no one language this passage tells us. No one language that is the preferred language of God. God doesn't speak just one tongue, one language. There's no one ethnic culture that is the true culture. No one ethnicity that is the right ethnicity. But rather the gospel finds expression in every culture and it critiques every culture as well. And what that means then, right from this passage, and we'll see it again and again throughout the book of Acts, that means then to become a follower of Christ, to grow in the Spirit, true spirituality, doesn't mean simply becoming a more middle-class American. But rather it means that as you grow in the life of the Spirit through Christ, you actually can become more truly Chinese as God has made you Chinese, and more truly Peruvian, and more truly black American, and more truly Ghanaian, and more truly Belgian, and at the same time, because you hold your cultural identity more loosely, you can also dwell in deeper unity in Christian family. 
This is such a unique vision of what it can mean to bring people from all over the place and with natural differences and hostilities together. And we don't mean this in any way simplistically or naively because the challenge is very great. In other words, it must be said that if you reject this particular vision of the unifying purposes of God across all of our differences and hostilities, then you are rejecting the very purposes of the Spirit of God. To believe and to understand that the Holy Spirit doesn't just favor one group. And of course, we can apply this to the tragic synagogue shooting in San Diego that we all heard about and perhaps experienced from a distance last week. The Holy Spirit doesn't favor one group, but rather translates his grace and his communication and his kindness from one place and one people to the next. He doesn't favor one group, and that's why there's no room for white supremacy in the Christian faith or even the supremacy of any culture. It's why anti-Semitism is antithetical to the gospel. And we need to see that clearly, not just because it ruffles our feathers, but because it's something that we see in the very word of God itself, right here in Acts 2. And of course, it's easy then to say, well, hey, well, this is good and nice, but I'm glad I'm not a blatant racist like that. But this is what we got to understand. Human nature, human nature is to be tribal. <laughs> human nature is to protect our own interests. The, the, the sin of our hearts is to begin to see ourselves as superior than one another. You might not be one that regularly confesses to some form of supremacy with a capital S, but oh, friends, supremacy is at the very heart of our sin in our hearts. We need to repent. And we need to ask ourselves things like this for our community. How can we ensure that we're constantly translating the life of our community, our worship, and even our little words into the cultural vocabulary and the heart languages of every person represented here? How do we actually make this a place, not that's just generically inclusive, as the world might define that, but that's a family united by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus. How can we be such a community that draws people in a way where people say, as the people that day said, hey, we hear them. These people that sing, the way they sing, the way they talk, the way they, they engage and commune with Jesus in the life of the Spirit together, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own native language. I don't mean that just literally. I mean native language as far as where people are coming from and who they are in their heart of hearts. The Spirit of God begins to change our relationships. True spirituality promotes social healing. Fourthly, true spirituality is Jesus-centered. American spirituality, as we've been describing, is at heart self-centered. It's whether it's either about self-improvement or about self-comfort and coping. But American spirituality has right at the se- I mean, sorry, the spirituality of the Bible, of this passage, has Jesus right in 
the center. Of course, the preaching of Peter draws this out more than anything else where he talks about Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourself know. And he goes on to explain how Jesus, by God's eternal plan, was handed over, put to death on the cross, suffered the judgment of God, but God raised him from the dead, verse 24, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he was raised all the way up to heaven, seated at the right hand of God as king, where he from which he then pours out his Holy Spirit upon all of you, which is what you are now witnessing this very day, Peter explains. Therefore, verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The very heart of true Christian spirituality is the exaltation of Jesus, the promise of the forgiveness of sins, his messiahship, his kingship over all people, laying down your lives and receiving his gracious reign over you. Is that the kind of spirituality that you have begun to seek? One that doesn't simply keep you at the center of your own life, but rather one that reconfigures your life around Jesus, around something and someone larger than yourself so that you're no longer the center of your own story, but rather you serve one who is. Again, Jesus is at the center of biblical spirituality, not us. And not even the Holy Spirit himself, who has a role that redirects all of our attention back to Jesus again and again. Isn't it interesting that when Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, he doesn't preach about the Holy Spirit. When he's filled with the Spirit, he preaches about Jesus, because it's all about him. Fifthly, spirituality, true spirituality, invites life change. American spirituality tends to be just simply experiential, right? It's sort of just what I'm going through and what it feels like to me. Maybe that sounds familiar, but it's not transformational. It's not something that actually changes you. In fact, it doesn't hold you accountable at all. It's one of the reasons why Eastern and American New Age spirituality is so attractive, because you can get a dose of God, but not have to change anything about your life. You're not accountable, It doesn't touch your moral views about anything. But here is a spirituality that invites you to life change because it invites you to true life. How does it tell us that the people responded when Peter preached? In verse 37, it says, when the people heard this, they were, what, cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart. You see, they were being changed right at the very center of their being. Peter just finished preaching a lot of facts and truths about Jesus. Christianity and spirituality is intellectual. It does need to engage your mind. But it does more than that. It engages our hearts. Sure, our emotion, but also our consciences. 
It rattled them to the core to realize that they had actually been a part of the crucifixion of the very Son of God. They had missed Him when He had come to give them His love and His life. And so they came repentantly. They came with a change of heart. And you see, true spirituality here really gets you thinking personally. And you don't really understand the message of Jesus until you start to feel that the arrow is pointing right at you. As Peter preached, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, once you become convicted of your own selfishness, your own sin and selfishness, once you begin to really be honest with yourself about how much you live for yourself, and even when you say you live for other people, Will you admit it's really for other people in order to serve yourself, your name, your reputation, your fame, your glory, and certainly not God's? If we're honest enough to admit that, perhaps, perhaps we see enough of the arrow pointing at us that we too can say, yes, I too have crucified Jesus. It is for my sins that he had to die. It is for my rebellious heart. It is for my rejection that Christ had to be slaughtered. Not just at the hands of men, but by God himself. Not just torn up physically, but torn up by the terrors of hell as he suffered the judgment that you and I deserve. You see, American spirituality just invites positivity. Just look at the bright side of everything. But that's really another form of dishonesty. You see, we might get uncomfortable with the accountability of biblical spirituality, but guess what you also get? Life in eternity. True life. Repentance that leads to change, most especially being given new life through Jesus. To be saved, as Joel said in verse 21, as Peter preached, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not everyone who climbs up the mountain themselves. Not everyone who proves their worth to God. No, just call on the name of the Lord. Admit your sin. Repent of your self-centeredness and your self-supremacy. Be honest. Receive the grace of God. Acknowledge Jesus as King. Cry out for your need for the power of the Holy Spirit because you know you're weak and you're powerless to save yourself. Know that you have a deep, deep problem and it's not out there, it's deep in here. Know that what you most need is not something that you have to access within here, but the Spirit of God in Christ descending upon you from up there. Do you see the difference? Do you long for this kind of encounter with God? Whether afresh if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, or maybe today for the first time. Might today be the day that you repent, which just means change your mind about yourself and about Jesus. Turning away from your sins, turning towards Him, and to receive something that you've never known before, the life of God in Christ Himself. I said six, we've only gone through five, but guess what? Six, number six, is 30 seconds. And it's simply this, true spirituality is communal, not just individualistic. 
The moment the people receive the Spirit of God, he pushes them right into community, right into family. And that's what we're going to study and see next week. You've got to come back to see this. This incredible picture. No, that was planned, Greg. Greg is tackling over here like I made a real-time edit on this. No, we're doing this next week because it deserves our attention. The communal grace of God working in the midst of his people. Come, receive God's Spirit. Be filled with him. Live in light of him. Him, he who points us to Jesus, the King of grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We need your spirit. We're weak and we're powerless. We need your grace. And we need this spirituality. We really do. Untangle what's tangled up in our minds and our hearts. Change us. We need your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together and let's sing.